0: I think we'd get along much better if we didn't spend so much time together anymore.
1: Why? Because I'm driving you crazy, and you're driving me crazy. And I'd rather not see you and have you think good things about me than have you see me and hate me. Because I can't afford to have you hate
2: me, Keith. The only things I care about in this goddamn life are me and my drums and you
0: hello and welcome to 80s movie montage this is derek
2: and this is anna
0: and this week we are discussing some kind of wonderful so
2: serious yeah i don't know why it is (laughs)
0: look it's a serious movie it's a serious (laughs) statement to say that all i care about is me my drums and you that's a serious statement
2: it's a bold statement it's a serious statement yeah all right (laughs) i take it back it was warranted the seriousness of that intro. Uh, yeah, so one, some kind of wonderful. So what is kind of fun about this that I just realized the other day is that like our very first episode yeah. was a John Hughes film, <laughs> The
0: Breakfast Club. Famously. And it's it's like the <laughs> same exact episode as, as this, right? No, um, they've changed a lot. It's
2: changed a lot, but... This is basically as close as we're going to get to being exactly on our one-year anniversary when this episode drops. That's true. Isn't that fun? It is, so yeah. So we started with John Hughes, and now on our one-year anniversary, we come John back Hughes. to John Hughes. There'll be
0: more John Hughes.
2: Yes, there will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we've had The Breakfast Club. Uh, we had Ferris Bueller. And so yep. this is the third of his like teen films from the 80s that yeah. we are covering. And it was the last Of his teen films from the 80s. This is 87. I mean, those movies all came in such quick succession. Really just three years passed between all of them coming out. So pretty crazy. And John
0: Hughes probably thought, like, why is this taking so long?
2: (laughs) Compared to, like, his writing style? Exactly. Uh, And, you know, gosh. John Hughes is somebody that we talk about at length in those other episodes so i feel like you're going to be like don't tell them this but like if you want to go back to the first episode (laughs) (laughs) and uh check it out um... first of all if you do good luck (laughs) hey look here's the thing first episodes are they ever perfect no you learn and you grow. What I'm laughing and... about now
0: is the person listening to this, listening to that and saying, I don't think they're that different.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe that's just <laughs> us thinking, oh, we're so much better now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, he, he is the gentleman behind The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller. Um, we also talk about him at length in that episode. Mm-hmm. And... The other three teen films that he did, which eventually we will get to, are sure, yeah. Sixteen Candles, Weird Science, and Pretty in Pink. And we talk about Pretty in Pink quite a bit um, with our special guest because it yeah. there's just a lot of comparisons that are made between that film and this one for, for good reasons. Sure. Um So, you know, and John Hughes, obviously, he, besides the teen films, I mean, he was just a giant Um, in the film world because of, I mean, just the amazing work that he contributed to it. I mean, from Vacation to Mr. Mom to these movies to Home Alone. um, I feel like most people are pretty familiar with his work. And, you know, he left us just too soon. Um, Yeah. So, but he did not. Okay, so I'm calling this a John Hughes film. And I bring this up with our special guest. But most movies wouldn't be referred to as somebody's film if they didn't actually direct the film. That is the case here. He did not direct some kind of wonderful... Nor did he even direct Pretty in Pink. They were directed by the same gentleman, Howard Deutsch. Okay. Is the way I'm going to say that. Okay. Um, I hope, sir, I am saying that correctly. I don't think he's going to probably ever be listening to this podcast, but just in case. Uh, so it is, it is technically his film in terms of him being the director of it. But... You know, maybe that's
0: part of why it feels it does. It feels like a John Hughes film, but not quite. Sure, like you can yeah. tell from the writing. You can tell that he it, wrote it. Yeah yeah, 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 and you and you see that, but just there's just like a, a little little subtle differences. Yeah,
2: I'd agree. Yeah, and uh, and he was a producer on it, so he yeah. still had a lot of kind of influence on how the film came out. Yeah, but um, okay, so w- this gentleman who did direct it, uh, really interesting and very impressive resume of credits and I just pulled some of them um he's still working to this very day okay but like I mentioned he also directed Pretty in Pink and and I think he had like you know pretty good relationship with Hughes he also directed The Great Outdoors this is so interesting to me so he didn't direct grumpy old men he did direct grumpier Mm. old men He also did not direct The Odd Couple, but But. he did direct The Odd Couple 2. Okay. So not only did he direct both of these sequels, but they're both sequels that have the same stars in them. Like, it's really, really funny.
0: That's interesting. With uh,
2: Jack Lemon and uh, Walter Matthau. So I just thought that that was like a really kind of odd little thing. But, and so moving on to, like, he has done other films, like The Replacements, The Whole Ten Yards, or some of his other movies. Um, But he's done a ton of television. And that's kind of where he's working now, into like, today, uh, TV space today. But one of his earlier gigs was for Caroline in the City. Oh. So he's... Okay, so, like, I would say he's reunited with Leah Thompson. But, concerning the fact that they got married, (laughs) like... They, they were already together. They were they were already united. There <laughs> was no re- yeah, reunited. There was no reunited. Yeah. Uh, so he directed on that show, and then some of his more recent work, True Blood. Mm. Well, I mean, I
0: did he like direct that last season, last episode?
2: You know, I think he had, I don't know. I don't, I've kind of blocked that show out of my mind. I'm so
0: still upset over the
2: way that show ended. Yeah. Um, But then he's like currently directing on Young Sheldon. So.
0: Mm. Well, I guess I'd rather watch the last season of True Blood again. Ooh, shots fired. (laughs) Are are they though? I mean. In comparison to Young Sheldon. I feel like any shots I fire against Young Sheldon or <laughs> Big Bang Theory would just be lost among like a cloud of other shots already aimed at any of those series.
2: Maybe not. I mean, I, yeah, this is hard for me to, not that it stopped me before, I guess, from being a little snarky about things that I don't know much about, but uh, never, I could pretty confidently say I've never watched a full episode of The Big Bang Theory. No, i
0: parts i guess
2: i've seen like scenes i've never watched an episode start to finish yeah and then same z's for young sheldon but anyway all right moving Moving on on. (laughs) (laughs) two okay so like this guy i think okay it's not spelled the same way but i think this guy has like my last name oh the cinematographer okay jan kaiser no i do not know him okay so last name is spelled K I E S S E R. Oh. No. I want to say that's like pronounced Kaiser.
0: Kaiser. Yes, yeah, no, you're right. You're probably I think, right. I think yeah. I'm.
2: Yeah, I think I'm right on that. So uh, among some of his credits, Fright Night. Nice. Yeah, right. I like that one. Uh, clean and sober. He has he has range. This one. Um, v I Worchowski. Oh yeah. It's so like a heart. That is a mouthful. Um, Dr. T and the Women, Now and Forever, and then has done some TV work as well, Falling Skies, the TV series. Okay. So, yeah, I...
0: A Christmas Story 2.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I yeah. didn't pull that one. <laughs> Christmas Story 2. That's also something I've never seen. No. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what I wanted to bring up, and I have kind of done this before... Oh, with yes, with um, certain films is the people behind the casting. Oh, yeah, because I do. And we we kind of go into this a little yeah. bit with Kevin, um, just in terms of the performances that are given by people who aren't normally part of the John Hughes inner circle in terms of like, I mean, he had his go to's Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. Um, so. All new, fresh people, even though Molly Ringwald was approached about the role of Amanda Jones, and she turned it down.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I just want to give credit to the woman who was behind the casting, because I think she did a phenomenal job.
0: Yeah. Do it. So, who was it?
2: <laughs> uh, Judith Wiener Okay, is her name. And so I want to know how you feel about this. She was behind the casting of The Howling.
0: <laughs> I mean, I... I don't have a real favorable favorable opinion of The Howling. Sure. But my criticisms aren't necessarily related uh, to the casting. Yeah. Good so, point. So I think there was like pretty solid talent in the movie. Yes, so, there
2: was. So good job. Yeah, she kind of held that movie together in some ways, if only it,
0: on account of the casting. Yeah, you might be able to say that, but for the casting, there's little other reason to recommend yeah the howling yeah
2: shots fired
0: yeah hey do you (laughs) want to see the mom from et turn into a werewolf there you go there you go
2: um so she is behind that uh a couple other films looks like she maybe had a relationship of some sort professional with uh hughes she casted on the great outdoors Mm -hmm. she also casted on k9 you know what i'm gonna ask
0: you right did she cast the dog
2: how does that work she's I mean, like, part of casting is, like... Who
0: casts the animals. Thinking
2: about chemistry between your potential actors. Yeah. So I would think that she would at least get to offer her
0: opinion, maybe? Well, I wonder how many dogs were actually... Right. Because it wasn't just, like, one dog, probably. But it
2: was um, a German Shepherd, right?
0: Yeah, but they... Do you think it was just the same one German, or did they have like no? We we'll use this German Shepherd for this.
2: Yeah, that's probably correct that they used multiple dogs, but also like I feel like there'd be some animals where you're like, well, this is all we got. Like this is actually I was listening to another podcast, oh. um, <laughs> the one that I brought up before, unschooled, okay. where they were talking about Groundhog Day, and saying that uh the people of Poxitani would not let the filmmaking crew of groundhog day use their groundhog and so they had to just find another groundhog and, no and so one... they literally just caught a yeah. wild groundhog a groundhog that had no training and that's why everybody kept getting bit on set and <laughs>
0: Because and to the people of Punxsutawney, wife. I would say no one cared. No one cared that your stupid groundhog wasn't that were, used.
2: That they were so, yeah. like, like the yeah. Were,
0: the replacement groundhog <laughs> did just fine. Other than the biting, it's just <laughs> fine. No I mean, one cared. I bring that up
2: because sometimes you don't have a lot of choices in the matter as yeah. far as, like, the animal that you're going to pick. But I feel like German shepherds, they're used a lot for stuff. And they're very easily trainable. Much more so than
0: groundhogs, Much famously. more than groundhogs.
2: Yeah. So... That's a fascinating question. I wonder how much input a, a casting director does have when there are animals. It's probably completely separate.
0: Anyway, moving on.
2: Moving on. So, yeah, so she did, you know, have a lot of film work, but she's also or was very prolific in television. Okay. So, like she was behind the casting of the TV series Soap and then its spin-off Benson.
0: What what? I didn't realize that Benson was a spin-off of soap. You didn't know soap. that? But
2: Be- yeah, right. Wow. I'm not wrong.
0: No, I'm not saying yeah. you are. <laughs> I'm just saying I watched one of those and it wasn't soap. You watched Benson. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No soap was before us. So like but Benson came a couple years later. Okay. Yeah. And it's, a, yeah, spin-off it's a spin-off. Of that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So and then she also cast for uh The Golden Girls. Okay. Yeah, family ties. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. And then more recently, The Practice. Okay. And then she's just done a lot of TV movies, too. She has, like, a really strong foothold in the TV movie world as far as casting goes. Okay, so bringing up another person. So, again, I felt like this is somebody that should be brought up for this kind of movie because I do think it really has a heavy impact on the way that we perceive the different characters. Costume design. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is a woman that we've brought up before. Her name is Marilyn Vance. And now this... So we're in a new season. And so like I'm putting aside my little rule of how I usually don't bring up somebody's work if we've already mentioned them in an episode. But like she's been brought up a lot because we've covered her for Romancing the Stone, The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Die Hard. She uh, did costume design on all those films. Okay. Um, But just to like real quick refresher on her work so she also did costume design for fast times Mm -hmm. at ridge high i mean she had a very close relationship with john hughes because she also did weird science pretty in pink um she did the untouchables yeah predator i mean so she had range she just she didn't have just one niche that she worked with um the great outdoors again so we've brought up that movie several times at this point. mystery men oh that's such a good movie i feel like it's a really underrated movie i think so but I love sadly, Mystery Men.
0: Sadly, it was 99, so we can no longer it. We can't cover it. it.
2: It's such a good movie. Um, Roadhouse.
0: Yeah, don't forget that she was an executive producer, I believe, on the title of erotic confessions volume 11 oh my apologies yeah i really 11. i'm
2: focusing on that costume design work Got not it.
0: necessarily the producing work i was
2: just telling um, you what she's known for <laughs> she worked on uncle buck and then also probably one of her biggest uh projects pretty woman a lot of her outfits from that movie are like pretty iconic at this point okay yeah okay so moving on to film editing so this is what's really fun remember when i got like so crazy excited because we covered like a father and son duo before we We have another one wow another father and son duo so we have the two gentlemen who did the editing on some kind of wonderful bud s smith and then m scott smith bud is the dad
0: the smiths the smiths yes Um, both of them. How did I know Bud was the dad, by the way? Bud is
2: kind of like an older generation type Yeah, yeah. That's like where my head goes. Mm -hmm. But so Bud, this guy's got street cred. So he was nominated for two Best Film Editing Oscars. So one, he wasn't like really the main guy on it, but he um, was part of the team. So that's why his name was also part of the nominations. Uh, The Exorcist. Oh, wow. And specifically, I noticed on IMDb, his name is credited as uh, doing the Iraq sequence. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yep, yep. So he did that. And then also he was nominated for Flashdance. Nice. So not too far removed from this movie. He's a Uh, maniac. He's a maniac. So some of his credits, personal best, just mentioned Flashdance. So we did cover this movie. The Karate Kid, but I was looking through my old notes and I never mentioned him. Because again, that hell? was like one of our earlier episodes. We were like getting into our
0: groove. We literally, we've actually we... had two episodes about The Karate Kid too. <laughs> oh,
2: that stings. <laughs> um, so he was the editor on The Karate Kid. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Uh, gross Anatomy and The Replacements. Okay. And then his son, so... There's some crossover. They did work together on, you know, more than just this project, but some of his other credits, to live and die in L.A., mm. Johnny Be Good, which also okay. stars Anthony Michael Hall, uh, Gross Anatomy. So that's one of the two that they did together. Uh, the Crow, which nice. I'm, I would really want to talk to him about that experience because, yeah, he had some heavy lifting to do.
0: Yes, that that tends to be the case when
2: when your star
0: tragically passes away in in an accident middle production
2: yeah yeah. Yeah. um and virus he was the editor on virus i don't want to talk
0: about virus viruses there's just too much
2: yeah there's a lot of virus talk already so we'll move on um and we're gonna move on to the stars of the movie okay so uh let me make sure before i like make such a bold statement but yeah all (laughs) all brand new people Every single one of them. Yeah. Nobody that we've covered already. Well. Okay. Well, who are you thinking?
0: I was thinking of uh, Leah Thompson.
2: Oh, Back
0: to the Future. And Eric Stoltz. We talked about him. We brought his name. came Up, but we that one.
2: I'll. I'll, I don't feel bad about. But I do feel bad about Leah Thompson. (laughs) (laughs) Man, this is. It's only gonna get worse as like hopefully. We continue to do more episodes, and I'm just yeah. forgetting because we've done so many. Anyway. We run
0: all of these through a, a cross-referencing <laughs> algorithm before each new episode, and sadly that algorithm has failed has us. failed? Yeah.
2: I, I, me being the algorithm, I have failed. Um, so Eric Stoltz, Keith Nelson.
0: Yeah. Our, our lead. Um, My favorite part about his introduction is that <laughs> we basically see him, like fixing cars and Mm -hmm. and staring down a a freight train Mm -hmm. literally staring Mm -hmm. down a freight train but then i'm also supposed to believe that he is like the outcast in school and i'm thinking yeah are you they set him up to be super dreamy
1: yeah
2: like (laughs) he's not he's not coming across as an outcast at all yeah yeah i mean you and and for the record folks derek brought that up to me before i brought it up to him so this in the movie i turned to look at you and said
0: (laughs) He's objectively pretty handsome. Yes,
2: yes, he is. So, yeah, I agree with that. Um, So, amazing career. S- absolutely still working today. Uh, one of his earliest roles, do you remember him? He, he, I don't know if he really has a speaking line. He's probably, like, laughing or something. But in Fast Times at Richmond High, when no. he's one of Spicoli's, like, stoner friends.
0: No, I did not. I did not he's even in realize that. Him
2: in... Um, Oh goodness, Goose from Top Gun. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Edwards. the yes, Anthony Edwards. Thank yeah. you. Um, those are his stoner buds in the movie. And actually, I I want to say Nick Cage as well, but he his uh part was cut, or maybe he was he worked at the he was in it. Maybe he wasn't one of the stoner buds though. I think maybe he worked with um uh, Judge Reinhold at the, at the Amber. yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Everybody was in that movie. Yeah. We'll get to it at some point. We will. Uh. So probably the role that really put him on the scene was mask yes so that was it and then you just mentioned back to the future here's what's wild and i don't know how recently this was added to his imdb but he has an uncredited credit as marty mcfly in imdb
0: wasn't there like a scene where maybe he was like in it in the, in the diner getting punched or like when there was the fight with Biff.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think that's yeah. why they're like, okay, that's why we have He's to. In it, so yeah, we have to. We have to. Yeah. But I'm wondering if that was always the case. I can't say I ever checked out his IMDb before mm. researching for this movie. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, so he has an uncredited credit. He's in Say Anything, Bodies Rest in Motion. Here's the other role. That probably most people associate him with Pulp Fiction.
0: Yeah, he's like the uh, drug dealer guy. Yes. Right? Yes. Who? The very
2: level headed drug dealer.
0: He's he's yeah. He's a businessman doing business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I I also highly recommend him in the movie Uh The Prophecy. Oh, you do? With Christopher Walken and um Oh geez. what is his name? There there's a uh, Viggo Mortensen plays Lucifer. Oh, in that. okay. Okay. And Christopher Walken plays, I think, an, an angel or something. But it's a good movie. Okay. Solid, solid movie.
2: Well, you brought it. I that was literally the next movie I was going to mention. So good job. Thank you. Um, Rob Roy, Two Days in the Valley, Anaconda. He's in Two and, Days in
0: the Valley. Everyone wanted that to be Pulp Fiction. It yeah.
2: Wasn't. Yeah, I know. I saw it. Don't remember anything about it.
0: Yeah, it's impossible to not compare it to Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. and then just feel bad because
2: it's not. It's not Pulp Fiction. He's done a ton of TV too, especially more recently. Um, He was on the TV series Mad About You, Chicago Hope, and then Madam Secretary. Okay. So Eric Stoltz. All right. Moving on to Mary Stuart Masterson, who plays Watts. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, It is... To my knowledge, and please somebody call me out if I'm incorrect about this, but she is never referred to as anything but Watts
0: in the movie. I think that's correct.
2: However, according, I think this like somehow got out into the ether because somebody got their hands on the script or whatever. Do you want to take a guess what her, like her real first name is? I know uh, it.
0: I don't, I don't know it. I can't.
2: Can't even take a guess? I can't.
0: Um, uh. Julie.
2: I don't think you're, like, so far off. Oh, okay. I mean, kind of. I don't know. It's Susan. (laughs)
0: Okay, yeah. No, I
2: was. (laughs) I I didn't get it. It's just, like, a nice normal name, whatever. Susan Watts. But is that, like, her real last name? I never took that to be her last name. I just took that to be a nickname.
0: Oh, I don't know.
2: That's interesting. So you think Watts is her her last name.
0: Yeah, I thought her nickname was Tomboy. Tomboy. Like everyone, yeah, I know.
2: The way they talk about her being a tomboy, I'm like, all
0: right. That's definitely, like, a uniquely, well, it, it's an 80s thing. It's it's definitely yeah. not a, a 2021 thing because, right. like, they threw that term around as though it was this, like, real slight against right. her. Right, right. Like, look at your short hair and the way you dress, and you wear, like, men's, men's boxers. boxers. And she went through, she was, like, seriously getting shamed. Yes, for that. Yes, and also, it. I, I feel like they really tried hard in the movie to make her somehow like less attractive mm-hmm. than Leah Thompson's character, mm-hmm. and I think for the most part, like they did the best they could. But come on, the yeah. chemistry between her uh, yes. and Eric Stoltz was like. The more I've thought about, it, the more I've realized it's fine if we all knew that he was supposed to like end up with with Watts at mm-hmm. the end, because that was. That's what we were watching. We were just watching him Mm -hmm. finally get to that moment. Like, Mm -hmm. we all knew it was going to happen because we're not watching Pretty in Pink. So we knew it was going to (laughs) happen.
2: Oh. Shots fired.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting how often they, like, yeah, like when he's talking about how awful his life is, he says, and my best friend is a tomboy.
2: What? I know. uh, You jerk. Um, But she's like, I really love her. I think she's a phenomenal actress. And some of her credits. Heaven Help Us, At Close Range. So the, I do definitely associate her with Watts first f- and foremost. Yeah. But a close second is uh, her in Fried Green Tomatoes. Of course. Yeah. Remember when I made you watch that?
0: I do. That's why I said of course.
2: <laughs> oh, but you enjoyed <laughs> it, right? Of course. Uh, all right. Moving on. She's been in some interesting rom-coms. Uh, she was in Benny and June and Bed of Roses.
0: Yeah. I've heard of those.
2: Yeah, they're okay. Um, she's in Bad Girls. And then some of her TV work, Law & Order Special Victims Unit. Has
0: I mean, everyone's been on one of those.
2: You know, I was thinking about that when I was doing the research. I'm like, boy, I it's got to hold the record, right, for the most casting? I don't know how you would – you know what I'm talking about? Like between the all law, the different iterations. Yeah, the Law & Order yeah. franchise. Right, right, right.
0: If you look at it from that perspective, like – it does feel like literally everyone has been everybody on, in some capacity. It's like a rite yeah. of passage. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But she, she wasn't just like a guest appearance. Like I pulled um, credits where she had like a recurring role. She
0: was a doctor. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So she wasn't just a one-off. She was a doctor that wasn't just a one-off doctor expert witness. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Um, also NCIS and then blind spot are some of her TV credits. Okay. okay, so the person that I slided earlier, because we did talk about her in Back How to the Future, you? I know, Leah Thompson, who plays uh, Amanda Jones. and
0: Her character is so important, they literally have a song with that in the name. They sure in the, do. In the, in the song. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that comes from Rolling Stones. I know. Yeah, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> sorry didn't me <mean> to <laughs> talk down to you. Um, <laughs> she... You know, so, okay, so now I do recall that we brought her up for Back to the Future. and She's in that one a lot. She's in that one a lot. Yeah. She's in the first, second, and third. She's yeah. in all three of them. Also, some of her credits, Red Dawn, Space Camp, infamously Howard the Duck, <laughs> uh, Casual Sex, The Little Rascals. So, you know what I was thinking about? It's interesting because she you know was a huge name and i'm not trying to disparage as if she's not a name anymore but she was a huge name in the 80s but i never really like i don't remember her ever being kind of like associated with the brat pack she was like brat pack adjacent but like yeah but she was in a lot of the kind of similar kind of like red dawn that had a ton of other people um space camp so i don't know i just thought that was kind of interesting that she was never really lumped into that group but uh i think i did i mention casual sex question mark the so
0: (laughs) you did i so awful you did i I wondered if there was ever gonna be a a sequel where it was just casual sex Exclamation
2: (laughs) exclamation point um so we brought it up earlier she was uh the titular caroline of caroline in the city yeah um more recently she was in the tv series switched at birth and then she's been in a ton of uh these like jane doe tv movies sounds like lifetime i feel like it might be yeah yeah There's so still working that. and happily married and all that good stuff so was she married too? howard deutsch yes were you putting me on the spot?
0: No, I was just... Okay. I
2: mean,
0: we already covered... Like, that's how they met. Was that's how they this, met.
2: Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so moving on to Hardy Jens.
0: Oh, Stephen Dorff is so good in this movie.
2: <laughs> Otherwise known as Craig Schaefer.
0: What?
2: I feel like it should be Schaefer, but yeah. I don't... You know, by the way that it's written? But anyway. Okay, so some of his credits... You know, this this guy's career really kind of baffles me in some ways. So he, as far as like an earlier credit, he was in the TV series Teen Wolf. He was like, I guess it was like maybe animated because he was, says voice of, he was the voice of Mick, the
0: bully. Well, I thought there There was was a more recent. Yes. Yeah. Was there an animated version of it too?
2: I want to say this was like, this would have been in the 80s.
0: Yeah, there was. I remember that. Um, Yeah.
2: So we mentioned it very briefly with Kevin, our guest, that uh, he was in A River Runs Through It, and he was great. He was great, especially because he had to play against a very up-and-coming, super popular on-the-rise Brad Pitt. That's tough. It's tough to do, and I really felt like he held his own, and I'm just curious. Like, he's still working, and I'm not trying to be disparaging, but I was going through his more recent credits, and I didn't really see anything that, like... I recognized.
0: We have that... we have had to provide the disclaimer that we're not trying to be disparaging Sorry. several times in this episode, and I'm just going to say, <laughs> hey, we're just saying it how it is. It's okay. <laughs> just
2: saying how it is. Yeah. But some of his other credits: Fire in the Sky, Sleep with Me. I had to put this one because the title's just amazing. Turbulence Two: Colon Fear of Flying. Interesting. Yeah. The one credit that I was like, oh yeah, I didn't watch the show, but One Tree
0: Hill, the TV series. He oh, was in Fire in the Sky. Was interesting. I don't remember him in that, and I I really like that movie. It's terrifying. I'm just, like, kind
2: of wondering, you know, like he would have had a lot of momentum after a river runs through it. I would imagine. So I'm just interested why it couldn't have been leveraged into more high profile projects. But well, well, who knows? Maybe maybe he didn't want to. Did so we want? Yeah. Did we want to? All right. So moving on to the father. Cliff Nelson wants his kid to go to college, get a nice business degree. He
0: demands that he go to college, and he demands that it's business school because he doesn't want to— He could do art in his own time. He doesn't want his son selling tires. First of all, I did not see his son sell a single tire in this movie.
2: He doesn't—well, he didn't necessarily— His dad sells say, tires? His dad sells tires. Got it. But he just said, I don't want—you you could be the first person in our family not to wash his hands after a long day of work or after a day of work.
0: That, that quote has not aged well in 2021 because I wash my hands <laughs> all the time. All the time.
2: Yeah. So, the actor of which we speak is John Ashton. And I mean, this is a gentleman who, I mean, still with us. And, um, you know, I don't, this was like kind of, it's not like before our time, but we were just much, much too little to watch a show like this. But I guess he was in Dallas, the TV series, okay. the show.
0: Yeah, no, I I got what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Texas. <laughs> what was he doing there?
2: But most people probably, if if it's not maybe this movie, most people know him from Beverly Hills Cop. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's like his his big role, and then he was in the sequel as well. Yeah. Um, she's having a baby, Midnight Run, and then more recently, Gone Baby Gone. Oh,
0: yeah. I don't so. Know
2: Isn't that the one with uh, Nick Cage and Angelina Jolie? Is it? Am I wrong? Maybe. I I mean, I feel like I saw that movie. He was
0: in the the TV miniseries of Stephen King's The Tommyknockers. Oh. Great book. You love some... Oh, no. I'm totally wrong.
2: What movie am I thinking of? I don't know. So Gone Baby Gone is like Morgan Freeman and Ned Harris. So I'm completely off the uh,
0: mark. Doesn't sound like Taggart at all.
2: Okay, apologies.
0: Moving um, on. Moving
2: on. <laughs> <laughs> to Elias Cottes. Uh who, like we mentioned with Kevin, doesn't get the kindest description in IMDb. He's no, what's referred he is I'm sure yeah, it's not that bad. Listed only as skinhead. Oh. Yeah.
0: That's uh
2: Um, but we're going to call him Duncan because he does have a name and he has referred to it several times. Uh so it's like why not just? Uh... Why not just call him like list him by his name? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, love this guy. Yeah. Love his role in this movie. He, for being a minor character,
0: really just like takes that material and runs with and, it. And also, like, I just want to point out, he's not a skinhead. No.
2: That's that's no. part of the like.
0: The the reason that it's frustrating is that he was just like part of this group of like punk rock looking guys. Yes.
2: Yes. He's and he's
0: mislabeled, you're right. I will give I will give all of the benefit of the doubt in whoever like like characterized it like that in thinking that like maybe in, in the eighties there wasn't the same connotation. Connotation. And yeah. I know that there there's room for that discussion in that music scene. Mm-hmm. But still, it's not. It's not even like, yeah, accurate. I agree because his yep. character, yeah.
2: And side note, the movie I was thinking of with yeah. Nick Cage and Angelina Jolie because now it was like nagging at me, "Gone in sixty seconds." So now, oh, yeah. gone, baby, gone. <laughs> gone in sixty seconds was what I was thinking of. Anyway, okay. So he's had an amazing career. Um, this was one of his earlier roles. And I think was helpful as like a springboard. Some people might know him if, you know, they like their 80s movies and their kitschy 80s movies, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. So he's Casey Jones. exactly. Came back for the third film. Uh, same character. He was in Look Who's Talking To? T-O-O.
0: Oh, I get it. Get it? Yeah. Gattaca. Apt uh, Pupil. Gattaca is amazing, by the way. Yeah, it's a good movie. Not just from that scene from The League where Raffi is screaming out, Gattaca! (laughs) But the actual movie is really good. Yeah, the actual
2: movie. So the film that I just think he's absolutely tremendous in is The Thin Red Line. So that movie has... Unfortunately, it is not an 80s movie because Terrence Malick didn't do any movies in the 80s, but he uh, came back strong in 99 with this one, and uh, Coteas is among... A monstrous ensemble cast and he really holds his own and is so memorable and I wish we could do an episode on that movie because I have so much to say about it I personally think it's just a gorgeous film and everybody should go watch it and they should in particular watch it for his
0: performance in it I also want to point out that he was with Eric Stoltz in The Prophecy oh yeah.
2: Okay. I didn't even have that. It's no, part of my. It's all right. Sorry. Um, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Shutter oh. Island, takes a little bit of a turn and and is in a very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Oh, mm. <laughs> you, know, you, you mm. say that so seriously. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, and then he's done a ton of TV pretty recently too. So he was in the series The Killing, and then the One Two Three Fire Chicago Fire Chicago Madden, Chicago PD.
0: Thankfully, he plays the same character.
2: That'd be super weird <laughs> if he did not. Uh, okay, so moving on to Molly Hagan, who plays Shane.
0: Did you? I just want to go back to the Chicago series. Oh, sure. Which ones did you cover? Because there's four of them. What? There's actually four. There's Chicago Fire, Med, PD, and Chicago Justice. uh. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I miss Justice. Is it in the same time frame as these other three? The other three.
0: Yeah, I don't even know if it's real, but it is listed in these in these credits. I
2: don't think it's part of that world.
0: Same, same. I think it's uh, yeah. Might not. We'll
2: have to do some off the podcast recording research
0: (laughs) (laughs) to see, because
2: those three are always listed like they're. It's always like a you know they. I don't. The Chicago. Yeah, the Chicago night or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, fascinating. Okay. So, Molly Hagan, she plays Shane, who is Amanda's supposed best friend, yeah, until she, you know, unceremoniously starts ghosting her, ignoring her because she's just going on a date with Keith. Um, so she's working up till like many other people that we've already listed working up to this very day. So, I don't remember her from this show. I never even really liked this show, but she had a couple appearances on
0: Alf. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. She was in the movie Fresh Horses that did have Molly Ringwald in it. I remember that. Um. So I didn't... This, this was like by virtue of like the title of the show, Herman's Head. So it was like kind of a cerebral... It's comedy. Yeah, I do kind of... I remember I that
0: show and I kind of remember her in it, but yeah. that show was... That show was Didn't made. It that was have... a show that was actually made and put on TV. Yeah. It's, it's... Um... I don't, I'm curious if that would fly today. Well, they, Disney made a whole movie about it. They did? With all the little emotions and stuff. Oh, much better. Yeah. Way better. It was. Than Herman said. Yeah. yeah. Yep,
2: yep. Um, Unfabulous was I I don't know it, mm-hmm. but a TV series she was in. So she was in the movie Sully. So that's okay. more recent. Uh, she also Law and Order True Crime. There we go. And then some of the other TV series, iZombie, Jane the Virgin, No Good Nick. And I put this one on for you. Oh. She's going to be in the new Walker TV
0: series. <laughs> I, yeah. My interest in Walker is just that it will be interesting to see Sam, Sam Winchester. Winchester. It, yeah. In another show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: to say like i have no clue who she is but maybe his mom i have not i've not heard the best
0: things mm. thus far well let's
2: wait and hold judgment until be, it's released
0: to be fair i never heard the best things about supernatural either so
2: yeah there you go yeah. uh and then she's just done a ton of tv appearances so that ne- not necessarily uh recurring roles but just like one-offs okay moving on to Maddie Corman, who plays the annoying little sister of Keith Laura the Nelson. Child. The middle child. Yeah. yeah she, oh, she's very middle child. Yeah. Yeah, very middle child. So Saimes, she's working. Um, I thought this was really interesting. One of her earlier credits is The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. That
0: poor, poor person.
2: Where she plays a character named Zuzu Petals. Hmm. Do you know what that's pulled from? No. Zuzu's
0: Petals. No. I don't know. (laughs) For those who are listening, I am getting a hard stare right now.
2: It's A Wonderful Life. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. She was in a show I'm not familiar, All-American Girl. Hmm. She was in the movies Mr. Wrong and Made in Manhattan. Uh, so
0: Made in Manhattan. But the maid is spelled differently, right? Yes. It's maid.
2: Yes. Mm M-A-I-D. Yep. Uh, I think I remember her from this because I mean I did watch the show Divorce. Oh yeah, okay. I think I do. Um Almost There was another TV series. And then more recently, she was in the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So nice. okay, so Jane Elliott, who plays Carol Nelson, the mom, so she doesn't have a lot to work with in this movie. She does not. So, you know, um, but man, this lady, her resume. She is the soap opera queen. Soap
0: queen, yes. Queen. Yeah.
2: Okay. So like one of her <laughs> oh earlier, yeah, she's like just literally been in all of them. Um, So some of her earlier work, I don't know if this was a TV series, or um, I'm sorry, a soap
0: opera, A Flame
2: in the Wind?
0: Let's just say it is. Cause it okay, really, let's just say it yeah. is.
2: But like, Knots Landing, Guiding Light, All My Children, Days of Our Lives, General
0: Hospital, which she is on right now. Like, wowzas. What about her- What appears to be her first credit, which is titled World War Three Breaks Out. Oh, yikes. Yeah. Okay. Pivoting from that into the soaps.
2: Yeah. Let's escape into the soaps. Yeah. Okay. So lastly, we have the precocious Cindy Nelson the littlest of the nelson family
0: she really hams it up like she's she's trying to get through her lines without laughing and most of the time she just is like smirking
2: i liked her though yeah, i, I thought she was fun so she's
0: like i'm the sassy youngest
2: yeah, kid and I'm, I'm uh I'm... too smart for my own good yeah 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 uh candace cameron bure mm-hmm. um so I mean, we all know where I'm going with her credits, but I'll do my due diligence and kind of mentioning some of her earlier work. So she, as a very young girl, was also on St. Elsewhere. She had a couple appearances on her wackadoo brother show Growing Pains. <laughs> um, sorry, I have strong feelings about that person. Uh, so, OK, everybody knows her as DJ Tanner from
0: Full House. Yeah, that, she was in TJ Hooker. What? She was on an episode of uh, TJ a Hooker. One, oh, like a one-off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. Um, she was on a TV series, Make It or Break It, and then she came back for Fuller House not too long ago. Mm, of course. Um, more recently than that, boy, this is a mouthful, but Aurora Garden Mysteries TV show. And then she's done like a ton of Hallmark movies. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It so. should, there should just be a separate category, Hallmark.
2: Mm-hmm. She's, she's doing just fine. Uh, and that's... That's our cast, main players.
0: It's a good cast. It's
2: a great cast, yeah. Okay, film synopsis.
0: I I just wanted to go back to one thing real quick because we talked about the uh, the um, Elias and the Mm -hmm. the title skinhead. Sure. All of his friends are just credited as skinhead's friend. Wow. There's like four. I feel like
2: I mean, look, IMDb at this point is exhausted. Like. Just it's it's a monstrous website because literally anybody who's ever done anything can get a credit on there. Yeah. So they probably don't have people who can, you know, it's maybe not worth it to them to, like, scrub through and update uh, with, like, more appropriate terminology. But that's, like, one that they should really maybe rethink. I agree. Yeah. Okay. You tell me. What you think of this film synopsis. Okay. Here we go. Lay it on me. When Keith goes out with Amanda, the girl of his dreams, Amanda's mm. ex-boyfriend plans to get back at Keith. Keith's best friend, Tomboy
0: Watts, realizes she has feelings for Keith. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> go for it. Uh Amanda was never the girl of his dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh The ex-boyfriend mm-hmm. was never really out to get back at Keith. It was more about putting both Keith and Amanda in their place in his mind. Mm-hmm. That's That was his motivation. And Watts fucking always loved Keith. Mm-hmm. She didn't just realize it. She just realized that she better do something about it because Keith suddenly, for whatever inexplicable reason, shortly into the movie, just starts stalking Amanda. Yes, he did. There's that scene when he's watching them fight where – the scene kind of goes on for a while with um, with Amanda, mm-hmm, where he's watching from his like art room. Yeah, yeah. he's just he's just watching. He's just, just watching
2: just the whole thing play standing out. Standing there, scary. Yep, yep. and
0: then and then he's like at the at the football field or mm-hmm, like he's mm-hmm. just I don't know what it was, but look, Amanda was never the girl of his dreams.
2: First of all, I feel like the synopsis was written by a 14-year-old girl, like the way that it's all set up, like getting back at Keith, and she has feelings for Keith. and So much drama! So much drama! But also, like, this film synopsis, um, I mean, I don't know why, because, like, usually you don't, like, use all of the first names, because it has no meaning for a person who doesn't know the movie.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it's just a very also the fact they to say
0: tomboy Watts.
2: I know, uh... I know, man. But there you have it. That is the current film synopsis on IMDb. Oh, what I'm
0: like, it's the worst one we've we've read.
2: It's pretty close to it, yeah. If not the worst, yeah, Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, so namesake of the show, yeah, '80s movie montage.
0: Yeah, I think we get one at about, um, yeah, the beginning.
2: Yes. The- Zero seconds in. Yes. <laughs> so opens with a montage. It does a really good job. Yeah. It sets up really well because there are these different players in motion, and we kind of have to get a sense of who they each are right away yeah. and the relationships that they have to each other.
0: Some rich people, some poor people. This guy's staring down a train.
2: hmm So it I think it's effective, especially because, you know, so we see Amanda and Hardy and they're doing their thing. Okay, so they're a couple um watts you know she they don't have any interaction between keith and watts in that opening montage so we don't necessarily know that they're friends yeah but we do see that watts probably is this young woman who does her own thing she's not dressed conventionally
0: um she for i'd say that she is just not for like the popular clique or popular crowd, like yeah, she just, she I just had mean, a look. she does
2: her own thing, yeah. yeah, yeah. She's not wearing a dress. She's not wearing um. She's not overly uh, conventionally feminine. She's she plays the drums. She's quite good at them too. I sure. wonder if Mary Stuart Mash. I should have looked that up if she had to like really practice that because it did seem. Um, I was like looking really closely at the cuts. Yeah, and they have some cuts where it's like obviously her playing, and especially when Keith comes and like walks in on her in her bedroom. Yeah. Um, So I thought that was interesting. And then, yeah, and then we have Keith, who it's set up really quickly. He works in an auto shop and he's walking home. So he has no car. So that's one one little marker of like his place in the social um, scene, because when Amanda says goodbye to Hardy, he jumps in his super cool, you know, uh, Corvette Or whatever it is. Yeah. Stingray, maybe? Um, I don't know.
0: Maybe it wasn't. You tell me. It was a Corvette.
2: And uh, convertible, at the very least, and drives off. So I think it does a really good job of setting up kind of the socioeconomic differences between all these different characters. I think so. Especially because then, the one thing that I noticed uh, when we were watching it again the other night is how long they stay with Keith after that opening montage. Like, they really spent a ton of time setting him up and his family life and the dynamic because... He has the conversation with his dad and then he has dinner with the family. And, you know, so it's I just thought that was an interesting way to transition out of that opening montage
0: for all of the setup of trying to portray like, oh, this guy's got a Corvette. He's obviously wealthy. Mm -hmm. And here's Keith and his ostensibly like poor or not as well off family. But look, that dad selling tires. I don't know what maybe the mom also had some some like jobs Possibly. that she went to yeah. i don't know but they had pretty nice home they had a really cute house three kids yeah massive like family dinners every yeah. night they're doing fine platters of food yeah. Platter- yes. <laughs> yes every every day's thanksgiving every day is thanksgiving, at, day at is
2: thanksgiving. so and you know what that's not our only montage no it's not it's not uh so we have a second montage that occurs uh is is carried out to the song of Amanda Jones. Yes. Uh while everybody is prepping for this big date between momentous, momentous date between Amanda and Keith. And so it pretty much follows those three, Amanda, yeah. Watts, and Keith, as they each are individually getting ready for this big night. Keith is
0: mostly just showering. He's just sho- he's doing a lot of showering. Yeah, and it's this.
2: interesting because he is also singing in the shower so it's like that's not diegetics like music and but like he's still singing along to the song it's weird um and like when his dad flushes the toilet he doesn't have to like turn down the radio or anything so it's really really odd that he is singing along to a song that is not part of the world in which he is in
0: i hadn't thought about that but you're right yeah uh, look his dad flushing the toilet was just the beginning of his problems that (laughs) night
2: um, but, yeah, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's all of them just, like, getting ready. So it's fine. It's not as, like, I think vital to understanding what's happening in the world of this movie as the opening is. Yeah. Um, But it's cool. It, it gives them a chance to play the song. So. Gotta play the song. Gotta play the song. All right. So with that, how about we uh, dive into our conversation with our special guest, Kevin Smokler. Let's do it. And so we are thrilled and honestly, very honored to have with us today, Kevin Smokler. Kevin is the author of three books, including Brat Pack America, and he is the co-director of the documentary Vinyl Nation, which came out just last year. So Kevin, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks, guys. It's really great to be here with you.
2: We're totally stoked because, I mean, we're doing our third... John, okay, I know that John Hughes did not direct this film, but I consider He's, it part of a John Hughes, you know...
0: It's a kind of a John Hughes it's film. It's a
2: John yeah. Hughes film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And to have somebody who actually wrote about this very genre of film is just honestly so exciting. So... I think we should just dive right in. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a lot to talk about. So, Kevin, uh, given that these types of films hold great nostalgia for just a ton of people, I'm curious, do you remember your first time seeing this movie? And what if thoughts, emotions, memories do you have connected with it?
1: Yeah, oh, I, I, I... I actually remember seeing this one clearer than I remember seeing the other John Hughes movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did not see The Breakfast Club in the theater. I remember seeing the poster at the mall, and it had the, the original poster of The Breakfast Club had this terrible, terrible tagline. It was just the tagline was, They wanted to break the rules, which makes it sound like Breakfast Club is like, is like more like over the edge of the Warriors than it than it is like than it is, you know, people sitting in a library for an entire day. And um and I was like, I I could not reconcile in my 12 year old mind what they wanted to break the rules and a movie called The Breakfast Club had to do with one another. Exactly, yeah. So I was just like, I don't understand that. Like I I don't understand that. It's rated R. I'm 13. It's gonna take too much convincing to to get my parents to take me to that. I'll wait until that one shows up at the, at the local video store. Um, But some kind of wonderful was February of 87 and Ferris Bueller's day off was June of 86. Um, So, I remember like being at that same mall and s- running into someone from school and then being like, we're going to see Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I sort of made a note of that, saw it later. And I think I saw that six or seven times in the theater. And then when I started seeing the commercials for Some Kind of Wonderful that fall, I was kind of like, all right, we're just going to roll right into that next one. Like, like, that's <laughs> like that's like the next movie about this kind of stuff. Um, I think Pretty in Pink was earlier. I think Pretty in Pink mm-hmm. was February of '86. Um, so I remember, uh, being like, you know, being like, as soon as I can, I'm going to go see this thing called some kind of wonderful. And I figured I'd just be like, just be like laying out, like, you know, like, 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 like asphalt on a freeway. I would just be laying out these teen movies until, you know, the end of time. And then, and then, uh, somewhere around, like, I think shortly, as we know, some kind of wonderful didn't do great at the box mm-hmm, office, and yeah. somewhere around there, it was like I, I think there was some like nightly news report where where they were like, and I guess that's the end of the teen movie boom. And I'm like, it Whoa. is. Whoa. I, I was just getting started uh, over here. Like, <laughs> um, oh my
2: gosh,
1: yeah. Well, uh, I'm
2: curious. Uh, and, oh, go ahead.
1: And I was going to say, and they were mostly right. They were mostly right yeah. until until what? And really, until Clueless, which was which was. Yes. Which wow. was July of, which was July of 95.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, this was for sure the last of Hugh's like teen films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that regard, absolutely true. And you're right. It did take a while for there to kind of be that resurgence of teen films. So in, okay. So this is kind of the elephant in the room. Um, oh. Had you seen Pretty in Pink? Do you remember? If you saw pretty and pink prior to seeing some kind of wonderful?
1: Yes, I had. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, at that time, did it have any kind of like, hey, this story seems kind of familiar to you at all?
1: No. No, I oh, was not okay. I was not smart enough to p- to pick up oh. on that. I was just <laughs> <laughs> I was really like I I I don't know why I, I don't know. I, I thought it was cool that, that there were these movies about people that weren't too much older than me. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, granted Judd Nelson was twenty-four when he made when he made yeah. The Breakfast Club, but like yeah. I think I, I for the most part believed that the people in Pretty and Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful were relatively close to my age, as opposed to like Michael J. Fox on Family Ties who looked like he was thirty, even though he was playing <laughs> someone who was seventeen. Like um <laughs> I mean, they did a wonderful makeup job in Back to the Future because he convincingly played a 17-year-old on in, in that movie where he absolutely did not on Family Ties that was on at the same time.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, totally agree with you. I mean, and and it's not to be like disparaging towards some kind of wonderful, because honestly, like I kind of, I don't know, you tell me how you, if if in any way you kind of break up those teen films of John Hughes, but like I kind of look at... Sixteen Candles and Weird Science and Ferris is kind of lighter, fair, whereas Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful are more kind of like a, you know, serious statement on what it's like for teens. And of those last three films, I personally connect the most with Some Kind of Wonderful. I feel like that's where he kind of perfected um. Those statements he was trying to make. Because I mean, Breakfast Club, obviously, people love that movie and we've covered it, but um it's it's uh kind of like, hmm, how do I put it? kind of in your face about the statements it's trying to make where I feel like some kind
0: of wonderful is more subtle? It's detached from like their everyday real life, whereas you're seeing some of these issues play out in the context yeah. of, of like Keith, who exactly. by the way is possibly like the dumbest smart guy that I've seen in a movie <laughs> because how do you not know that Watts Is interested in you
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean i I think it's important like like breakfast club breakfast club and ferris belong to a a a, a duo a a couple unto themselves meaning they are both movies about like an extraordinary single day um Mm. a single day that will never happen to any of us um not the case with and 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 weird science is like about an extraordinary weekend. like like <laughs> um, not the case with the other John Hughes movies. Everything that happens in those movies is plausibly something that could have happened to you when you were a teenager. Yeah. um. In, including some kind of wonderful. And I I think I, some kind of wonderful to me just, I mean, I love them all, but some kind of wonderful to me just feels more mature all around mm-hmm. as yeah. an act of filmmaking. It was Howard Deutsch's second movie rather than first. Um, the actors were a little bit older. Um, John Hughes was, um, John Hughes was coming off an incredible run of movies, but it was, I mean, it was his seventh or eighth produced screenplay. He was not, he was not a young writer anymore when he, when he made that, when he wrote that screenplay. So, um, it just feels, it just feels like it's spent more time in the oven and, and is, 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 is more ready to be itself
2: that's a, I, I really love the way that you put that that it spent more time in the oven that's exactly like how i feel about it and i do think that um in large part i personally i feel like part of it is the performances i love the casting in this film um particularly with the two leads uh yeah. which you know i consider to be um eric stoltz and mary stuart masterson so i i think they bring such a groundedness to to who they are as characters in the world in which they live. And I I just honestly, I'm captivated by them. And and I thought they had great chemistry. That's the other thing. is well, that-
0: Yeah, they did. That's why that's what made it difficult for me to believe <laughs> because their chemistry was so like obvious and apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, they were like Eric Stoltz. I don't think I realized just how good he was in that movie. I mean, I've seen it. Obviously several times, but watching it yesterday and really like putting a focus on what was happening, I mean, not even a quarter of the way in the movie, I think I actually looked over to you and I'm and I'm like, he's really good. And like, I'm not buying that he's having a hard time with the ladies because he is (laughs) objectively a a pretty handsome dude.
2: (laughs) Yes, he is he is a nice looking gentleman. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, Kevin, in terms of this love story. What like were you all in did you buy into all of it where Keith would have this fascination with Amanda Jones and also that he would be you know oblivious to Watts feelings for him or were there things kind of like what what Derek just said where he's like come on like how how could he not know.
1: I don't know if I bought it or not. Like, like I I can't say how I felt back then because I I sort of didn't understand how adult or even teenage romance worked back then. Um, I I will say looking at it now, uh, there's of course way more chemistry between Eric Stoltz and Mary Stuart Masterson than there is between Mm -hmm. Eric Stoltz and Leah Thompson. And it kind of has to be that way. Like, like if, if, Eric Stoltz and Leah Thompson melted the screen. You'd be saying to yourself uh, the ending wouldn't make any sense. Like you'd be saying to yourself you'd, you'd be saying to yourself, well, "Well, why are we giving that up?" Like like it it would yeah, it um it, it would be like, you know, George Bailey like throwing over Donna Reed in the last 25 minutes of It's <laughs> a Wonderful Life and finding oh someone God. else. Like um, I love that her, so much. <laughs>
2: Violet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean no, it wouldn't make any sense. Like uh so I I think I think that's that's a brilliant piece of casting um mm-hmm. for all three of them and I uh and I think that so I don't know if I I don't know if I bought the love story but I guess I wouldn't look at it in those terms sure. I I do understand that like having spent a whole lot of time with each of these movies that John Hughes writes movies that work on a a a mythic rather than realist level and and that that sounds weird to say because anybody who came up came of age with those movies felt like they spoke to them somehow. But if you place them alongside the movies that inspired John Hughes, which were, you know, classic mostly classic Hollywood, all of those movies are, are sort of are are all, of, all all of those movies are, are are templates that were that come from come from thirty and forty years before you know like I like to say what is Ferris Bueller's Day off but on the town with teenagers instead of sailors like hmm. and oh, yeah. and those movies uh the 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 sort of uh uh triumvirate of actors that are in each of those that are in pretty and pink and sixteen candles. And some kind of wonderful. I mean, that's a that's a Doris Day, Rock Hudson, Tony Randall structure. Like, and yeah. uh, and so i i i never I never quite expect for it to make sense. I, I just expect for 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 a John Hughes movie to make sense or be plausible. I just expect it to kind of feel right um, mm-hmm. because it operates much more on the level of feeling than on the level of plausibility, emotional mm-hmm. truth rather than factual sure. truth.
2: Yeah. And I mean i I kind of want to um touch on what you just said a minute ago about you know the chemistry between Keith and Watts having to trump that between him and Leah Thompson because of the outcome of the film and it making sense to audiences so i I know that to some degree it's it's not really fair um to be comparing movie to movie but i am curious what your thoughts are on you know this idea that john hughes wanted a little bit of a do-over because of the way that pretty in pink turned out and you know i'm sure a lot of people are just at this point very familiar with the story of how they had to reshoot the ending um because in the original version she ends up with ducky i mean I personally think that she did have much more. I'm not saying really that the relationship was meant to go in a romantic direction, but I do think that she had more chemistry like John Cryer, Molly Ringwald. That chemistry was much stronger than that with her and Andrew McCarthy. But do you disagree? How do you feel about that? That whole like situation with him making some kind of wonderful in response to the way that pretty in pink turned out.
1: I mean, I, I think that like, I think that there's, there's something to that far from everything, you know, um, John Hughes, John, John Hughes was, was an incredibly prolific man. And even though we think of his, his filmmaking career kind of coming to an end in the early nineties, um, the guy wrote screenplays until the day he died and, 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 and it produced screenplays. I'm not talking about like, like wrote them and put them in a drawer. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was only just getting started like when in what we think of like the 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 white hot center of his career it was actually like the beginning um or maybe the like late beginning early middle um so he was constantly taking things from his own life and things that he was curious about and using them as inspiration for his next project. Um, he wanted to be an artist when he was in high school. That's why Keith is mm-hmm. an artist. He painted a painting of Nancy Ludwig, who became his girlfriend, who later became his wife. That's where the sketch in, oh, in wow. Some wow. Kind of Wonderful comes from. Um, he... Uh, he was incredibly close to his best friend and he had a little trio when he was in high school with his best friend and his girlfriend who became his wife. That was the inspiration for Ferris and Sloan and Cameron um, mm. but it carried on like that that structure carried on like like the, the the real like I I know people people have a certain hero worship of Ferris Bueller, but like the real like Type of character that John Hughes um, wrote the best was the best friend. Like the best mm-hmm. friend is is like is John Hughes. John Hughes's narrative c- contribution to cinema is is the great teenage best friend. Um, Cameron and Watson and, uh, and Ducky are far more interesting mm-hmm. characters than mm-hmm. than than pretty much any of the other ones. In, Agreed. In, in, in John Hughes movies, um, so I, I think this is a long way of saying, like, yeah. Of course, he wanted to do over, but it was also just like the next thing he wrote um mm. and and he never stopped like he uh he he was famously he was he was on the set of the breakfast club where he like pulled Anthony Michael Hall aside and said, "I have the next movie. It's about two kids who use a home computer to invent the perfect woman are you in <laughs> I mean that's how quickly he was he was like already on to the next thing like um so uh I'm sure the do-over was part of it it was also just like like the next like tooth on the John on the John Hughes flywheel.
2: Okay. Okay. Hmm. I didn't and I that was lovely some of the little you know uh trivia bits that you were bringing up mm-hmm. where um he was inspired by individuals in his own life and then that kind of came to fruition on screen. I love hearing that. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess okay so kind of with this whole world of his teen films and the fact that you just brought up one of them, Anthony Michael Hall, um, between Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald, they were the two, uh, that were in most, well, each of them, half of his films of the teen genre. And I, from what I read, uh, she was offered the role of Amanda Jones and turned it down because I understand she wants to kind of move on and, and do other kinds of work. Um, personally, I think that that was the greatest thing that happened to the film, that there was a chance to showcase different talent. Um, How do you feel about the fact that he was like so uh, loyal to certain actors and like wanted them to continue to be part of his films? Or do you think that it, you know, do you do you like that you see Anthony Michael Hall in three different ways in his films and same with Molly Ringwald? Or do you wish you would have gotten the chance to see other actors?
1: That's, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I, I, um, I I think he, even though he worked with the same actors over and over again, I thought he made really good use of them. And he, I I thought he was able to give them different and more interesting things to do. I mean, it is a, it is a silly, silly scene, but the scene where everybody smokes out in the breakfast club and Anthony Michael (laughs) Hall puts on the sunglasses, um, and does the bit, which I later found out was from a a Richard Pryor routine that 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 John Hughes and Anthony Michael Hall used to like to watch together. Like like I, I don't I, I've never located that routine, but that mm. it that is a that is a lift from Richard Pryor saying, Chicks can't hold a smoke. That's what it is. <laughs> like that <laughs> uh, And in that moment, like you see Brian Johnson like differently than you see him for the entire rest of the movie. Um mm-hmm. and the moment is you know, 90 seconds long. Um, and, and I think, I think like that's a micro example of it, but the macro example is like, yeah, Anthony Michael Hall is, is very different in 16 candles than he is in, than he is in, uh, in weird science than he is in, in, um, uh, uh, breakfast club. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciated the fact that he worked with, with the same actors and challenged them in, in each of those different roles. I also, like, I also think that like, Some Kind of Wonderful is a better movie because it wasn't written for anybody in particular. Mm. Like, the way that Pretty in Pink is absolutely written for Molly Ringwald. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I think Pretty in Pink's a great movie. I think Some Kind of Wonderful is a more interesting movie because he didn't have anybody in mind. Um, and the cast that is ultimately in the movie were not all the first choices for that movie. Um, I think I I don't remember who's. I I mean, first of all, it had a different director originally. Originally, it was going to be directed by Martha Coolidge, and I think that would have been a great movie.
2: I do Uh, too. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, disparaging of, of uh, you know the actual director of it. But yeah, I think Martha Coolidge would have been an amazing choice. Do you, I, do you have any information on why she stepped away from the project?
1: I think it, it wasn't coming together and, they, okay. and they, they did not. The initial casting choices weren't quite working. I think Dana Delaney was supposed to play Amanda oh. Jones or someone like that. Oh. I, I don't remember. I don't remember. There's, there's a couple of books that, that outline exactly sort of what the original uh, lineup was for Some Kind of Wonderful. And it just it just wasn't happening. Um, I, 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 I absolutely believe there, there could have been a great version of some kind of wonderful as directed by Martha Coolidge. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that like the people who have the hardest, I I think Eric Stoltz is brilliant in this movie, but I think he's mostly brilliant when you contrast it with like mask before and, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. work he did for Cameron Crowe after like, um, I, I think it's it, it he's brilliant sort of within the context of his career rather than within the context of this movie. Um mm-hmm. I, I the people who really have the hardest road to hoe in this movie are Leah Thompson and Mary Stuart Masterson. And and the fact that neither one of them had sort of the the neither one of them had ever worked with this team before, I think I think that's part of why they feel that part of why what they do feels so fresh and original and it just sort of shines from the inside.
2: Totally agree. And I mean, in particular, I mean, I, like I have kind of already alluded to, like I am, have such a huge crush on Mary Stuart Masterson for her, her performance in this film. Like, I think it was just a beautiful performance, but I really appreciate Leah Thompson in this film because she was doing something different than, than what we've seen so far in uh, up to that point in the John Hugh- Hughes teen films. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, there's kind of this, like, very overt separation um, between the different, you know, socioeconomic groups. Uh, it's a mouthful mm-hmm. sure. to put it that way, but, you know, there's, like, the rich kids and the poor kids opposite. Yeah. But the, the wrong side of the tracks, like, quite literally mm-hmm. in this film. <laughs> and um And I love that, you know, the way that she plays between having this, desire to be part of this group but then feeling so much shame and lack of self-worth because of being around these people and like the speech that she gives um when they're in the hollywood bowl is a really really great speech and i it felt so so genuine to me and so i as much as i you know i know at the top of our conversation was talking about how much I love the way that Keith and Watts are played, but she really, um, you know, maybe I need to give her more credit. Well, um, so
0: that character was a far more complex character than you might imagine at first blush when, mm-hmm. when you're just looking at the context of the movie. And in particular, her performance was really incredible coming off of something like Back to the Future, mm-hmm. which I think is the like the next first thing that i can think of mm-hmm. seeing her in before this so seeing her in like high school setting but in such a completely different way and seeing all the different uh layers to her character because you could easily just like write off a lot of that and stereotype her in one way to to fit the movie but i thought it was um a really complex deep kind of character that you don't really get to all of that until that hollywood
1: bowl scene mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I if, if we don't feel sympathy for Amanda Jones, the movie's over. Like, like it, it, her her performance is that important because if she's unsympathetic, then Keith is on a wild goose chase and he looks like a moron, and we're just like yeah. waiting around for him to realize his mistake. There's no movie if we don't feel sympathy for her.
0: He is perilously um, close to that.
1: <laughs> as yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, so we have to that. That's how important Leah Thompson's performance is. And you know, she was not the first choice for that role. It was actually Eric Stoltz that lobbied for her to, to be hmm. to be Amanda Jones. And I think that um they were friends having from from the from the original casting of Back to the Future, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and uh and I think that was really like that was really, really Uh, a a really important casting choice and a really important performance Um, to say nothing of the fact that Leah Thompson and Howard Deutsch, the director fell in love, got married on that movie and remain married to this very day. Um, The uh, yeah, I I think that um, the uh, it's um, what am I trying to say? Yeah. We, we, because John Hughes's movies are set up in such a sort of archetypal fashion, uh, it is too easy to sort of follow their implied stage directions and, uh, and, uh, and say, oh, well, this is who we're supposed to like, and this is who we're not supposed to like, and this is who we're supposed to feel uh, sympathy for, and this is who we're supposed to hate, and because the movie is sort of laying it out so clearly for us. Uh, and we miss when we do that, we miss what is so great about his movies. Like, um, uh, Stefan Pretty in Pink is frankly one of the great movie villains of like all time. He really is. I, I
2: love him. Yeah, I mean and, I love and, to and, hate him.
1: Right. <laughs> and and it's a little silly because he looks like he's about 25 and you yeah. can't believe he's in high school. <laughs> I mean, always uh, wearing
2: suits. Like yeah. it's like what is going on here?
1: <laughs> right. And 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 Craig Schaefer feels like sort of the low rent version of that in, Thank you. In, that was in,
2: actually a question I was going to ask you about. We can we'll go yeah. more into that too. I ahead. am supposed <laughs> to uh, yeah.
0: I am supposed to just hate him
2: though, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Okay. We are supposed to just hate him. And Craig Schaefer is not as good an actor as James Spader is, but like you watch, you watch, I I mean, Steph grown up is Robert California from the office, right? Like, I mean, nice
2: connection. Yeah. I mean,
1: the cool thing is like, like the cool thing is that like James Spader plays every bit of an oily, um, you know, creepy disgusting villain yeah and at the same time you get this sense particularly watching the movie as an adult that he's kind of playing the long game like you see james spader imagining his career like like extending out much further than this like he almost feels not of the movie he's like he you, you almost feel like james spader being like being like and next, I'm going to play a serial killer. Like, like there's something yeah. there's <laughs> that's you so can
2: interesting. Yeah, we can have like a whole. I feel like we could have a whole side podcast because I never really <laughs> thought on that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I guess kudos to him. Like, he really leaned into what he knew he was good at. You know? Yeah. For, and, for,
1: go ahead. For I, I know I was just going to say for a role that like. Doesn't give you a lot. Like, there's not a lot written. Like, Steph mm-hmm. isn't isn't a deeply written character. Like, like James Spader really makes the most of it. Um, and I, I just think like that's that's something we always have to like. It's why John Hughes movies stand up to multiple viewings. It's because what's great about them like keeps shifting and revealing themselves the more time you watch, more times you watch. It.
2: Totally agree. I mean, that is such an interesting point about his career. Yeah. Even with, um, like, Secretary, yeah. he has that mm-hmm. kind of complexity. Um, yeah, great, great point. And, and that's, I mean, and thank you for taking us to, you know, like what I said my next question is going to be. I mean, so first of all, the name Hardy Gens. I mean, <laughs> could you get any more, like...
0: I already uh, know I'm supposed to hate him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like,
2: you know yeah. he's a hateable character. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I never want to just throw overt shade at at an actor. I know that it's a really tough industry to be part of. But um in terms of like, okay, so we've already kind of made the broad comparison between Pretty and Pink and some kind of wonderful. And I feel like you just can't can't not compare these two villains. I mean, even it's, to the degree that they kind of wear the same outfits, you know? Yeah, Hardy is
0: a big fan of the of the jackets. And really like <laughs> All I needed from Craig was to, I needed him to be a complete asshole and to like be pretty attractive. And he definitely did both of those things. He did both of those more than, more than well enough for me to like, okay, this guy is like filling his role perfectly. Could it have been better? Maybe. I also thought it was Stephen Dorff for about 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, that actually, that works. That totally makes sense. I mean, Stephen Dorff's probably 10 years younger than Craig Schaefer, but yeah. <laughs>
2: um i mean kind of you know not to continually now go back but i think that one thing that really uh works about the performance in pretty and peak is that it's it's relatively understated like you know craig schaefer again he i like for instance i I was telling derek last night like i absolutely adore him in a river runs through it like (laughs) i really love the role that he has um but he's just almost like too too much, you know. And and I guess it he could work more as a villain in maybe one of the broader teen films like Ferris, where they're all kind of over the top to certain degrees, um, or Sixteen Candles, maybe I don't know. But uh, but because everybody else in this film kind of yeah. has an understated, layered performance, because uh, even at the end of Pretty in Pink, where you know, Blaine tells stuff like you just couldn't buy her. Like you hate that, that you couldn't you couldn't buy her the way that you buy everything. And there's this like reveal of kind of this insecurity that he has. And I don't think you really ever get that with Hardy. There's I just I don't see a layer. But what do you think, Kevin?
1: Yeah, you know, I I I haven't really put it in these terms until now. So thank you both for for uh uh helping me to see it this way. Um Steph, as a character, is necessary to Pretty in Pink. Um, Not only, not uh, not in the least of which is because he's Blaine's best friend, and you need that dynamic in there to complicate the relation. Uh, why the the relationship between uh, Blaine and Andy? You don't need Hardy Gens. Like you need, mm-hmm. yes, yes, you need some some climactic desi- something something to happen at the end where Keith ends up uh choosing watts over amanda but like if that movie were made today the movie would only be about keith and watts and amanda and and Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't you you wouldn't need a villain like it like it would seem it would seem unnecessary and kind of silly to have a villain um and and so like i i I think craig schaefer does what he can with it but like Mm -hmm. fundamentally the character is unnecessary to to the Mm -hmm. story that the movie is telling um and and you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think Craig Schaefer is much better in River Runs Through It. And he's much better in Vision <laughs> Quest, which was only the year before this. Like, um, <laughs> I, 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 think, I think Craig Schaefer's agent told him, like, like listen, they put you in this stupid looking rat tail in Vision Quest, and you're a handsome guy. Like, we got to find you something
2: <laughs> afterwards where you looks.
1: look good in a suit. Like, <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> that's, so, and, and I, I agree with you, especially when you have the character of Shane. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's the more dynamic. And, and she's not a straight up villain, but nice. um, but she has a more dynamic role to play yeah. against Amanda. And and you see, I mean, like Amanda is <laughs> humiliated and insulted and angry at Hardy for him being kind of an obvious cheater. But I think that the emotional investment she has with Shane and feeling that rejection because like she's kind of put in this impossible position. She really doesn't know what to do. She is a nice person. She doesn't want to just like break off the date and to have then Shane reject her for that,
0: I think is the greater blow. But then you see that look of regret on Shane's face when Amanda walks exactly. away. Exactly. And, and so, you know, like, well, she's not, I don't really know if she thinks she's like, why she thinks she has to do this, but she doesn't feel great about it. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, when I guess her arc is concluded when she realizes that she wants to hook up with some of the punk rockers. <laughs> That's awesome.
2: Yeah, so she has a little bit of redemption yeah, arc. She's there. like, you know what?
0: I'm not better than everyone. This is fine.
2: Yeah. Um oh please go ahead. Oh, I oh, thought you were
1: gonna I- I, I was just gonna say, I, I think like like I'm I'm totally fantasizing now, but I, I also <laughs> think that like that minus Hardy Jens, I think there's a lot more for Maddie Corman to do in this movie as the little yeah. sister. And and she's so fabulous in this movie. And um and she was she was way younger than everybody else. Like um she uh she was much, much earlier in her career than everybody else was. And and I, I feel like that character has more room to breathe, you know, minus Hardy Jens. Like, like she could be the reason that, um, Keith feels like, uh, uh, the date with Amanda is a stupid idea. And then she comes around in the end. Of course she does that to some degree already in that fabulous scene in Keith's room Mm -hmm. at the very, you know, near the end of the movie. But yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I, I would have loved to see that I would have loved to see I would have loved to see more of more of Maddie Corman in that film
2: well I'm so thank you for bringing her up because that was leading me to my next question which was the or, or you know conversation about Keith's family and the way that his home life is depicted I thought that it was such an interesting choice to be made I mean nothing is really overtly shown we we all are made aware a couple times throughout the film that Watts has a not healthy home life um so so it kind of does a little bit stick to kind of what has been set up um in other you know teen films of john hughes not to say that like for instance andy and pretty in pink like i know that there was a loving relationship between her and her father but her father had his own demons he was dealing with um so i thought it was very refreshing to show uh keith coming from like a, a stable family a family that loved him And I wanted to ask, like, what are your thoughts about this dynamic between specifically him and his father and what his father is hoping for him and what he wants?
1: You know, God, there's there's so much there. Like like I one of the greatest I know this seems weird because John Hughes was considered like the Shakespeare of teenagers. But like one of the greatest things that John Hughes movies did is is how well they cast adults. Like the adults are the, if you, if you take John Ashton as John Ashton as Keith's father and Paul Dooley as, as, um, as, uh, uh, Sam's. Samantha's father yeah. in, in, in 16 Candles and Harry Dean Stanton in Pretty and Pink and like, and, um, and, uh. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm 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 trying to, or or, you know, the parents in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just Mm. the there's such good roles for adults in these movies that are all about teenagers, and um, you know, Paul Dooley, you know, take Paul Dooley in Breaking Away, and then Paul Dooley in Mm -hmm. in in Sixteen Candles. You've got two of the greatest father performances of that decade. Um, Is that Breaking uh,
0: Away the the movie completely about cycling? Yeah, that's a great <laughs> reference. Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, um, I, I I submit that's the first '80s teen movie. Um, yeah. So the um, even though it was '79, but uh, the <laughs> uh, the um, I, I think like there's there's all John Hughes movies. Uh, and after I just got finished saying like they all have great roles for adults, they also all have absent parents. They all have mm-hmm. parents that are off screen that are spoken about but never seen. And you know, and you know, everyone from Cameron Fry's father to to Watts's parents that you mm-hmm. never see, to uh, to Watts's brothers. She mostly speaks of her brothers that you never mm-hmm. see. To um, uh, to you know, which kind of culminates in you know, which kind of culminates in planes, trains, and automobiles, where you realize that like, where you realize that that John Candy's wife is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, yeah, a lot of people. He, he has a thing for people being spoken of who are, who are never, who are never seen. Um, and I don't know, like I, I think, um, I think it's a really interesting dynamic. I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the, uh, all of, all of his movies kind of acknowledge the fact that these kids are kind of on the precipice of adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's most clear in in some kind of wonderful, because, because the entire, you know, the last line of course is about the future and, um and, uh and the dynamic between Eric Stoltz and John Ashton is kind of, is kind of what that's all about. Um, I, I think it's necessary. I, I would have, I think it's necessary for the, for the story to, move i i i i wish they would have given it more time he really mm-hmm. had a thing with making movies that were like exactly 90 minutes like like there's <laughs> they, they don't they don't really get 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 a minute more than they need um and uh and i think um i think like like i i would say like like the use of the use of like the precipice of adulthood is kind of I wish, I wish the dynamic between the two of them had more of that scene. You know, the scene in Ferris where they're they're standing, where they're in Lake Forest and they're look, they're overlooking the seashore, and Ferris is addressing mm-hmm. the camera and saying, "Listen, we're all going to graduate. We're all going to go on about our separate ways." And you realize, like, that's, that's really sad. You know, for a movie that is incredibly innocent and lighthearted, you realize the reason that Ferris has done this whole thing is because he's worried that his time with his best friends is running out. Mm -hmm. And I wish there was a bit more melancholy in the dynamic between Keith and his father, because like, yeah, Keith's father is angry at the idea of him wasting the money he's raised. That anger is motivated by the fact that his, that his son is about to leave, you know, Mm -hmm. possibly forever. And, and he's, um, he's, uh, scared and, and, um, and sad about that, there's a lot more going on than the movie let's happen and i mm-hmm. I, I wish mm-hmm. there was just more room for that kind of stuff.
0: I think what was interesting in their in that relationship is that from the very good go <clears throat> excuse me it's it's Keith's dad asking about what college he wants to go to, and they never really talk about what keith like Keith never really talks about what he wants to do until that confrontation towards the end when his dad is obviously angry because he probably thinks that Keith has no plan and maybe he doesn't have a plan other than going to the Hollywood bowl with one person. (laughs) But what I really enjoyed about that confrontation is how it began with his dad being so angry. And then Keith finally talking about what he wanted and what he didn't want and asking his dad to trust him and his dad actually trusting him. I thought that was just a, a great, grounded moment that could have gone like off the rails into some ridiculous kind of fight. And it didn't, it it always like stayed close enough to where you could believe maybe you'd want to believe that that is a conversation that someone in Keith's position could have with their father.
1: Yeah. There's, there's definitely like a, there's definitely like a, a, an air of like, He's buying a pair of earrings. He's not asking for, you know, he's not asking you to trust him while he like runs the Iditarod or something like there's, (laughs) there's, yeah, there's, um, (laughs) I mean, there's, and there's a no, I'm not a parent, but there's a really, I think what's going on there is this idea that like, particularly when your kids are like about to become grownups, like you kind of have to let them mess up and learn their lessons. Um, and you can't, you can't always be like yanking at the leash when that's about to happen. Like, um. Because then they'll never learn, and um, they won't and, listen
0: to you anyways. Yeah, yeah,
1: right. And they won't listen to you anyways. And so, yeah, there's a, there's an awful lot about parents and children and growing up in that scene that the movie the movie doesn't like really give room to have happen. But you know, now that I say that, you know, maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is like the movie's only supposed to give you so much because that gives you room to uh, think and imagine and dream about like what else it. What else it could have been like I, I I certainly think about like what happened when you know when uh, uh, after Keith and Watts walked off into the sunset like I, I think about that often
2: and I mean one thing that I really liked that you said is in terms of when Keith is having kind of this like final confrontation with his father and what is the the motivation behind his dad's behavior, I think you're totally right. I mean, and and I appreciate that the film doesn't paint him in this very black and white stereotypical, you know, the dad just doesn't understand and he's in his own right a kind of villain. I do think it's coming out of fear for his, his child's future and, and just wanting to make sure that he's, he has security. I think that that's something I'm, and again, we're like, we're not parents either. Um, uh, But I think that, That's probably always something that a parent worries about. But I think that in particular, the parent that comes from his generation, you know, valued like security above all else. That's why it's like pushing for him to go to business school.
0: I appreciate that he valued education.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it's kind of funny because like, you know, I remember watching this uh, in my younger life. And of course, you're like siding with the teens. But then upon <laughs> our last, you know, we we always watch the film like the night before we talked to our special guest. And so it's like, you know, his dad has a really good point, you know, not necessarily about the business school, but about, you know, like, what are you doing dropping a couple grand on a pair of earrings? I mean, I think
0: <laughs> like San Pedro... Not that far away. They could just, they could each set up something on Venice and he could sell <laughs> some art and she could play some music and get, get a few bucks and figure something out.
2: There you go. Yeah. Two crazy kids. just try, there. There's your future between <laughs> Keith and Watts uh, uh, on the Venice strip. Um, yeah. And I mean, one thing that like when you were talking about the depiction of adults in the John Hughes films, I just personal opinion. I think that one of the reasons why people, uh, or young people gravitated and still continue to gravitate towards these films is because the way that I kind of look at it is that the teens are always the smartest people in the stories. Um, you know, they're yeah. and I mean, that probably really comes to life in Ferris. Um, mm-hmm. yes, but, uh, and I do agree that, you know, like there, there's just that really, really lovely moment, between Samantha and her father on the couch in the middle of the night, and sixteen candles, mm-hmm. and they have the heart to heart. But like you know, for a great majority of the film, you know he's kind of a little doofusy, um, mm-hmm. or at least oblivious, and certainly the mom. And and there are shades of that, like when uh, the father and some kind of wonderful <laughs> knocks on the window. Yeah, come on. In yeah. school, and yeah. there's that real kind of broad comic moment. But mm-hmm. I think part of that maturity. That you were talking about earlier, Kevin, in terms of, uh, you know, this film baking a little bit more, I think shines through, especially in the in the home life and the depiction of the parents, because although there are a couple moments, I don't think they have really much doofus about them. You know, um, they're just hardworking parents who care about their kids. And yeah, I just I just I just personally like that. I like that that it parents were shown in a different way than i had previously seen i mean especially when you think about just the outright like and and they're like not even on screen for more than a couple seconds like villainy of of every single parent in the breakfast club you know yeah
1: this is a, a realization of course i don't think any of us have when we're actually teenagers like it's really like it, it, it feels really unfair. It feels like kicking a puppy to watch a movie where, like, where like it's so obvious who you're supposed to like and dislike. It's like the movie is, isn't playing fair at that point. Like, and I mean, like, I, I I'm of the wrong generation to say this about Easy Rider, but like, I I think Easy Rider is a great movie. And Easy Rider stacks the easy rider is the most rigged game in the history of movie making like like easy Rider, it's very clear that everybody with long hair and a tattoo is someone you're supposed to like and everybody who doesn't have long hair and a tattoo is a nazi um and maybe that was maybe it was necessary to do easy rider that way at that time um but it makes it a worse movie, not, not a better Mm -hmm. movie. It makes, it makes it read like a, it makes it read like a piece of, a piece of social propaganda instead of a story. And, um, and I think that like, I agree, like, like movies where, movies where about teenagers, where every adult is a moron um, are, are just, are just playing to the peanut gallery. They're just assuming that it'll all be teenagers in the audience. And, and those movies are like, are like, intentionally or unintentionally slitting their own throat because like how is that movie going to play 10 years from now when the 16 year old in the audience is now 26 and a Mm grown-up how's it going to play 20 years from now like if um you know when that person might be a parent themselves um i uh and it's like 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 why like why do that like like why like like why waste the time of the actors you cast in those roles. Like, like why, why, uh, I've, I've made a movie, just one, but but I've made, (laughs) but I've made a movie and it's, and it's really hard. It takes a long time and, and, and you work long hours and you're, and you're frequently tired and exhausted and overwhelmed. And part of that comes from the fact that you really want to see it through and have it be great. And if you're gonna go on that very long journey, like, 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 why, why, why punk out and do, and do, you know, and do parts of it that are sort of good enough, but not very good at all? Like, I, it's just, it just, it, it doesn't make much sense to me.
2: You can't see me, but Derek can attest that I've just been nodding my head yeah, in no, agreement the entire we both time that you've been speaking. <laughs> we both have, because I think
0: what's even worse than than the situation you described is when. That intentional choice is made, and all of that hard work that you just referenced is actually put into making the adults look like complete idiots. Because mm-hmm. that's like, why? I I can't really say anything more other than why, because I'd be like, why? Why do that? Why?
1: Uh, yeah, I'll give you an egregious example of this, and and it's funny because I actually enjoy this movie, even though it's not very good. Um, I was precisely the right audience at the right time of life when the movie reality bites came out Mm. i was i was a junior in college and i was you know i was a year or two away from being like where those characters were it was it was my movie it was made for me and that movie treats every grown-up um like like trash to be thrown out on on saturday morning like um and it's not just you know it's not just like poor ben stiller whose character has to be a villain even though the character is clearly not like a villain and ben stiller is the director so he was kind of stuck with that but worse like like look who they managed to get to be the adults in those movies Uh, in that movie john mahoney and mira ben stiller's mom and, and and keith david like like great great character actors and every one of them has to just like oh well here's a jerky adult who doesn't understand like 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 the genius of our main character like like why are you wasting those talented people's time like
2: uh, totally agree with you i mean mm. boy talk about a movie that also just like really defines the early 90s oh yeah <laughs> i yeah. mean I
1: think yeah.
0: The, the balance that that I feel has been struck in a lot of John Hughes films, including some kind of wonderful is that the adults aren't, aren't dumb, but they're, they're kind of, they're beyond that point of their life. They're mm-hmm. adults and they're trying to live with the circumstances that they have. And while they're not necessarily inferior from, from, you know, looking at perspective of intelligence or, or wisdom or what have you, those movies to me, talk about the kids being at an age or not kids, young adults being in an age where they're figuring out what they want for themselves. So it's not that they're smarter or better. It's just that they're coming to that point where they know they're, they're having that self-realization of, you know, like you mentioned with Ferris, like I am about to take this next step in my life and it's kind of scary, Mm -hmm. but here's, here's how I feel about it. Here's the direction I want to go. And it's there's there's such a big difference between something like that and just casting or characterizing all the adults as like these demons that like mm-hmm. maybe one day you'll become one.
2: Mm-hmm, Guess mm-hmm.
0: what? You will. Yeah. When, what <laughs> exactly, is it that yeah.
2: uh, Ally Sheedy says in uh, the Breakfast Club? Like when you grow up, your heart dies. You know, it's kind of like that whole idea of that's what that's what's going to happen to you one day when you get older. So.
1: It's it's really a shame that's the line that people most remember from that movie. Because first of all, because the movie has because movie has a thousand quotable lines, and and two, it's like it's not even true. Like no, like it's not true. true. <laughs> <laughs> like it's true because of the adults featured in that movie. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, you know, like John Hughes was an adult when he made this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> i know
2: it's kind of a interesting it's like are you a little bit pandering then to the audience that you think which it's so strange like literally for the you know as long as i've you know loved these movies it it never occurred to me until literally just a couple of days ago that breakfast club was a rated r movie so i'm like yeah. what audience were you playing to because the 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 young crowd that this movie is presumably about can't even like legally watch it so it's just an interesting dynamic yeah.
1: Um, I, I could have that wrong, but like I th- that that is my memory of my memory of that movie was that it was a rated R movie, and I I was gonna have to like go to the map to convince my parents that it was okay for me to see it
2: oh you're totally right you're totally right Mm. that it is a rated r movie um Mm. i guess the language i suppose or some of the sexual ish yeah yeah kind of all of it yeah, yeah that's probably why um i wanted to now i mean we've been having such an amazing conversation but i wanted to just really quick touch on the really great like you you kind of brought it up a little bit already with maddie corman playing keith's younger sister. But I think one thing that also this film does really well is just having really colorful minor characters. Um, I mean, I'm a little biased, but like, I love Elias, uh, and, um, he is fantastic in this. I also think that even, um, you know, like the boy that Watts tries to make it look like they have a relationship, Scott Coffey, you know, like mm-hmm. all of them are cast so well. And they also just they bring so, so much color and energy to the film. And that's another way that I love this film is kind of this like, um, this is a little dramatic of a way to put it, no. but like, you know, extension of the olive, olive branch in terms of these different groups, you know, uh, Clicks yeah. of students being able to cross over and find, uh, understanding and friendship among each other. And I thought that that was really lovely. I love that they gave an actual arc to, uh, I mean, I don't like the way that he's, um, Titled in IMDb, he's just called Skinhead. His name is Duncan, and he's called Duncan (laughs) several times over. So, he
1: has a name. Like, yeah,
2: yeah, that
0: is an awful.
2: It's uh, yeah, it's like, come on, who did that? But um, but how did how did you feel about kind of just all those little side characters? How did you feel about that relationship between Keith and Duncan?
1: It really feels like the movie, like, is is a universe and not like Mm -hmm. and not like you know a series of set pieces on sound stages or something like that. I mean, I I I. Uh, Elias Coteus or Co- I don't know how his last name is pronounced actually but like You
2: me, both yeah
1: <laughs> yeah uh, but he you get the same feeling from him that you get from James Spader um in Pretty in Pink where you're like you're you're seeing that actor at the beginning of like a really fabulous career mm-hmm. like like you're you're only seeing a little bit of what that actor is capable of um and and maybe that's easy to say in retrospect because both of them did go on to have fabulous careers but like But like, yeah, I mean, Duncan has like three scenes and is and and, and walks away with every and walks away with every one of them. Like the desk scene,
0: I mean, the 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 (laughs) detention scene where they're like no words, no dialogue, just comparing their art. It's amazing. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it it is. It is amazing. And um and uh, the uh yeah and the you know the um the the end where he says you know the whole thing like like he. He 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 never talks above a whisper. He never yells in that scene where where, where everything happening around him is loud. Like um, uh, yeah, it's it, that that's a magnificent performance. And of course, like you you're only beginning to see why like he shows up in all of Adam McGoyan's movies and stuff and and stuff like that. Like um, so I I just love that. I, I love that. I love that. Like. I really, and this is this is true for John Hughes. This and this is definitely true for John Hughes. To me, it's true for any good director. Like they always, they always follow through on 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 the smallest moments in the movie to make sure they're mm-hmm. worth not only the actor's time but the audience's time. Like, like uh, granted, like it, it is a it is a gross stereotype, and frankly, I wish it it wasn't part of John Hughes's universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Richard Edson playing the the garage attendant in Ferris Bueller's Day Off is brilliant. Mm, like yes, um, yeah. yes, yes. You know, and yes, he's in that movie because he was in Stranger Than Paradise and in one of John Hughes's favorite bands. Um that's why he's in that movie. Um do you look at that role and are like and are like oh yeah, like like I can 100% see why this guy was later cast in Movies like Platoon and Do the Right Thing. Like, of course, mm-hmm. you can see that. Um, and I appreciate what you're saying about uh, the Duncan character, obviously being part of a different band of misfits at this mm-hmm. school than Keith and Watts are part of. Um, because I think it almost, not quite, but almost makes up for the fact that John Hughes has a has a horrible track record of of, of, of casting non white actors. Like, yes. like there's um, totally agree. It, there is there is a diversity at work it's not as thorough as it should be um but uh um the the fact that the fact that that is a that is a high school in southern california and there's not one um latin american student there is ridiculous like right um, yes uh, Mm -hmm. so uh But I think I I do appreciate the I do appreciate the 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 gesture that the um, particularly and particularly in this movie it reveals that the the uh, caste system of this high school is more complicated than just Mm -hmm. people with money and people without money.
2: Well, Kevin, this has been just such a lovely conversation. Yeah,
0: thank you so much. It
2: it has been so fun to hear your insights and and to get all kind of this like knowledge and trivia that we weren't you know. Prior aware of, uh, so thank you so very much for taking the time to be on the show.
1: Oh, you're welcome, you guys. It was it was really fun to be here and to chat with you guys about this. I I, I appreciate your interest, and I I just appreciate that people are are willing to uh, to keep on after this and, and and be endlessly refreshed by this kind of stuff thirty years later. Just exactly. <laughs> I, think I, th- I think it just shows how great these movies are.
2: Totally agree and with are. you. Yeah. Um, and so you know we kind of bring this up with a lot of our guests. I know the last year has been uh unlike any other. Um has been pretty sideways, but uh, we have so many amazingly creative people on the show and I just wanted to see if there were any projects or anything that you have been working on that you wanted to share with our listeners.
1: Sure. Um before we get to that, I want to yes. say that like I want to say that like one of the distinctions that I think some kind of wonderful has that it does not often get enough credit for is it has the best soundtrack of any of the John Keyes movie. Um, Yes. Not that, I I mean, Ferris Bueller is a close second. There's a lot of great stuff on the Ferris Bueller soundtrack, but um, the fact that it was unavailable for as long as it was unavailable, I think it's still not available on vinyl. Like, it's, um, it, it, it sort of hobbled itself. Um, but I think this, I think some kind of wonderful soundtrack is just magnificent. And, um, you know like like a page ripped from like a a british new wave magazine of 1987 if that sounds interesting to you i think i think you will really be taken by 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 this movie soundtrack
2: I'm really um, glad you brought that up because you're yes. absolutely right. It is an amazing soundtrack. And I mean, I love that that was always something that was very important to Hughes. And, and again, not to take away from other uh, filmmakers yes. who maybe contributed to those decisions. But um, so just in general, I love that, you know, his films by and large have these amazing songs connected to it. But of them all, I agree. I think Some Kind of Wonderful has has the best one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, that did not stop me from from on record store day 3 years back purchasing the pretty and pink soundtrack on pink vinyl um because oh, why boy. else would you well you know what else would you buy it on um and uh <laughs> so um I am speaking of that. I, 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 the movie I made last year, vinyl nation is a documentary about the comeback of vinyl records in America over the last 15 years. Um, we finished in February of 2020, which was the world's worst time to finish Mm. um, a movie. Um, and so we, we screened virtually at a hundred theaters around the country. Um, we're doing this completely backwards and, um, and right now we're, uh, we're on the film festival circuit. Um, most film festivals, at least for the moment, are virtual, uh, meaning you buy your ticket just as you would if you were in attendance and you see it at home. And, uh, so Vinyl Nation is in seven film festivals this spring and early summer five in March, one in April, and one in May. And, um, and, uh, we will continue. I think we'll be on the festival circuit for the rest of the year, and at the same mm-hmm. time, we're kind of we're kind of looking into uh, uh, television deals in, in in Europe and in Asia. Hmm. Um, and then, as far as books go, I am I am just uh, dotting the i's and crossing the t's on on the contract for my next book. Um, which will be a collection of in-depth interviews with, um, with women film directors. Um, from, uh, from doing this book, from doing Brat Pack America, the subtitle of which is A Love Letter to 80s Teen Movies, um, I got to do a couple of events with Amy Heckerling and Martha Coolidge and really spend quality time with them and learn about like, what it was like to be pioneering women filmmakers in the 1980s. And that's where the idea came from. Um, I felt like there had not been a kind of Paris Review style in-depth collection of interviews with, with women film directors. So, um, so uh, that's next. That's, uh, I've got a, I've got a, a year of festival screenings for the, for this movie um, up ahead and then, and then working on this book.
2: Wow. I mean, first of all,
0: first of all, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and, I'm literally watching Anna's mind get blown <laughs> from across the table. So that, that sounds incredible. It's true.
2: Yeah. It's really true. I, That's
1: very sweet of you. Thank you.
2: I'm so excited for this. book. I mean, I know that you're, it sounds like you're in the early stages, but is there any kind of estimate of when it might, might come out, might be published?
1: I think it'll take a couple of years. So okay. I would say probably, I would say like, uh, realistically speaking, maybe 2024. Um, and I think the challenge will be, the challenge will largely be, you know, getting on the calendars of busy directors who I want, who I, who I want to be in the book. Um, and, and I, 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 I don't think that will be, I'm not going to, that won't be as nearly as much fun as sitting down with, you know, Cassie Lemons and Gina Mm Prince-Bythewood and, 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 you know, and I don't know, Ava DuVernay and Sofia Coppola, I should be so lucky but. that's um that will be part and parcel of of the amount of time it takes to do this particular project
2: okay mm. and as far as vinyl nation goes i mean what a timely like film to have come out because i mean we know so many people who are just like vinyl enthusiasts yes and i mean for, i mean of course without hesitation, we'll be recommending it to our friends and anybody else that we know because it is something that truly like to to what you said about the last fifteen years, it's amazing how vinyl has made this resurgence. Um and it's yeah. just kind of really cool to see this this come back into trend. And I know you mentioned a couple of the film or, – or that it was going to be in a couple of film festivals. As far as like um, the ones that are coming up in March, would you be able to share the name of those festivals just so that our listeners can kind of have a place to to go to? Uh,
1: yes, of course. It, um, yeah. So we keep, uh, we keep track of all of these things at our website, which is VinylNationFilm.com and then the festivals that we are getting into that we are we are an official selection of for march are oh man, i'm i'm going to be mad at myself if i don't remember this but like we are uh we are part of the Las Cruces film festival oh, in cool. Las Cruces New Mexico um the San Luis Obispo festival in film festival in San Luis Obispo California uh in your neck of the woods we are part of the Idlewild film festival oh
2: okay. very cool uh,
1: and uh and we're also in the uh the uh Oxford uh mm. the Oxford Film Festival in Oxford Mississippi um and then there's a couple more that uh that I, I don't think I'm at liberty to say just yet um but uh the great thing about this particular period in in being a movie fan is um is it is possible to attend, air quotes, film festivals that you don't live near, um, and you simply purchase your ticket as you would if you did live near Las Cruces or Idlewild or any of those places I just named, and you can watch the film festival at home. Now, of course, film festivals, what makes them unique is it's a way for for, for people who live in that area to see movies they wouldn't mm-hmm. ordinarily get to see otherwise, Um but I don't know what's going to happen after this pandemic, because if you were the Idlewild Film Festival and you'd suddenly made a bunch of friends from Nova Scotia, like would you want to tell them no? Like would you want right, would you want right. to tell them to go away after? Yeah. I don't know. Um, so it's been really interesting for us, and it's been it's been what what we've learned. What, the amazing thing we've learned is there are people who love great movies in in as the Pet Shop Boys would say in every city in every nation. And, um, and it's, it's, it's been great. Like, like we, we, we're sad that we can't go to these places, but like we are, Chris, my co-director and I are very excited in like March for it to be like on Tuesday to be like, hello, Mississippi. And then Wednesday to be like, to be like, hello, New Mexico. Like <laughs> that's so all from cool. the comfort of our own homes. Yeah. We're super excited about that. And, and we have, we have applications out for, you know, about two dozen more film festivals. So hopefully, hopefully we'll be, um, we'll be, we'll be showing up in, 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 in other places as the year goes on.
2: Absolutely. I think that there's definitely a demand for that type of story and that content. Yeah. Um, and just congratulations on the success that you've already had. With, with the film so and and again just thank you for your time today it has been truly yeah. such a pleasure thank you so much and you know there's other john hughes films or <laughs> even just teen films so uh you know maybe uh maybe repeat a uh, guest appearance sometime in the future
1: uh if you are yes maybe we can t- maybe we can do uh we can do a house party or oh, the legend of billy yes. Jean or something like that
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right well take care kevin and thank you
1: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It was fun.
2: So again, Kevin, thank you so very much. We had really quite an amazing time talking to you and kind of picking your brain about all things John Hughes and teen movies of the 80s. So
0: there was like good, legitimately solid info, like things that I had never known. Legit info. Intel. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Okay,
0: Derek. Yeah.
2: Would you watch this movie again? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: You better say
2: yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I absolutely would. Yeah, I, I enjoy this movie. I think it was like some of some of these movies and we, you know, we talked about this a little bit. Some of the themes in these movies, when they first came out, they weren't things that I was as interested in. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just kind of wasn't in the, the right frame of mind to really get the same out of them. Now when I watch it, I, I think it's interesting to kind of see what these, I guess what the portrayal of, mm-hmm. of these characters' mm-hmm. lives were and how much none of the characters in any John Hughes movie ever wanted to go to college. It was all this like death sentence, <laughs> going to college. <laughs> so no, I, I really enjoyed it. The music is amazing. I, yeah, I would absolutely watch this again.
2: Me too. I, I mean, I love John Hughes. Uh, did did my master's thesis on John Hughes. Yeah. So I really, really love these movies. And I was You telling- better say you're
0: going <laughs> to watch it again.
2: I better say I'm um, going to watch it again. I was just telling you this the other night, that knowing that we were going to have to watch this movie to just prepare for the podcast, I was like excited. It had been a while since I had seen it in its entirety. And now that we do have a couple John Hughes films under our belts, Between Breakfast Club, Ferris, and this movie, I think I was, like, just the most excited to see this one again. Maybe it is because it is the one that, like, is probably on the most infrequent rotation. Like, we'll catch Ferris on TV. Yeah. Um, Things like that. It's more just –
0: it just has a more pure comedy focus to it, obviously, that that this does not have. Yeah. And then, you know, The Breakfast Club has the cast – it's got the whole brat pack thing going in a way that this doesn't. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe those are some of the reasons why why they get a little bit more airtime. Yeah. On uh, the linear TV that no one watches this, anymore.
2: This one is <laughs> kind of almost forgotten kind of in the canon of those teen movies. It's not it's just not even brought up as much.
0: Well, it feels like a different a bit of a different movie for me. And it's it's the last of these teen movies that, that Hughes wrote. Mm-hmm certainly not the last of the movies overall that he that he was involved in yeah but it on one hand it it had like a sense of maturity about it mm-hmm. that some of the others didn't but it felt like it it actually could have been a, bit, a little bit longer there could have been more time spent exploring some of the themes because there there's more depth to it but it's like this weird paradox where the depth is kind of shallow
2: yeah I, I totally feel what you're saying and I think it's in part what uh, what Kevin was saying which was like funny but also very astute that like John Hughes is like okay 90 minutes we're done
0: yeah because at yeah. the end <laughs> at the end Keith is like you know what I just realized something I actually love Watts so credits
2: we have we're
0: gonna peace out we have
2: 120 seconds yeah. left in this movie we have to have this epiphany so.
0: my future looks great on you let's let's fucking go let's roll yeah Exactly.
2: All right. So calls to action. You know, I think we are going to do. <laughs> yeah, are you no, just, I'm
0: just trying to think of what, <laughs> trying to just say what your call to action is going to be. Well,
2: okay. This one's probably the simplest okay. of any call to action because just it's, it's been on my brain for the last couple of days now in terms of like, this always happens when we have a John Hughes movie, which is like, okay, which of the ones do I like the best? And maybe I should stop doing that to myself um but i'm just really curious i really want to know of all of his teen films so like i'm not talk well obviously i'm not talking about films that aren't in the 80s yeah. so like unfortunately we can't we can't do a comparison to like home alone or something like that no. um but of specifically his teen movies because then other people might be like well i really like mr mom or whatever and that's a great movie too and we'll cover it at some point favorite but- hughes teen, teen movie. movie
0: okay are you asking me
2: i mean i'm that, curious it's uh it's ferris okay yeah okay
0: i mean i would say ferris then this some kind of wonderful then breakfast club and i'm probably gonna drop pretty and pink down to the bottom of that list interesting yeah we will yeah. be doing pretty in pink <laughs> <laughs> Not no. like the next one. In fact, and it's it's like rank a list of all really good movies. So right. one of them is going to be at the bottom. And it's like, that's not a one, bad movie. One
2: has to be at the bottom. It's I just, just like the way yeah, it there's is. a little more. Exactly.
0: Yeah. My, my call to action was going to be tell us about that time you spent your college tuition on a date.
2: Right? I mean, <laughs> I this is like the older Anna now overpowering the younger Anna because I, I mean, I don't know. I was always pretty pragmatic, so I don't know if there was ever a point where I was like, yeah, he should totally be spending all those thousands of dollars on a pair of earrings for a girl that he's probably never going to go out with again. But uh,
0: he better not go out with her again now after he's like professed his love to, to Watts, Watts yeah. and given
2: her those very same earrings. Yeah. And honestly, um maybe this is just like covid era and talking but the fact that like amanda took them off and
0: then watts put them right on oof no that's fine that's fine i didn't have a problem with that
2: okay well in any case
0: <laughs> <laughs> sneak peek oh yeah what are we gonna do what should we talk about next
2: okay so i I'll- don't know <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, it's going to give it away in, like, milliseconds as soon as I say this. Okay. I have the need.
0: Oh, Top the Gun. The need yeah. for, Let me... Oh, sorry. I thought...
2: <laughs> I have the need. The need for speed. Top Gun. <laughs> Correct. All right. So, what is going to be... So, I mean, it's going to be a fun episode anyway, but what I am so excited about... Is that we're going to have a two-for-one. We're going to have two special guests for this episode. And they're amazing. So I'm so excited to have them on the show. And I think it's going to be really super fun.
0: So listen up next episode when four people (laughs) talk about that volleyball scene. (laughs) That's all we're talking about.
2: It's going to be a deep dive into the volleyball scene of Top
0: Gun. Top Gun volleyball scene, the podcast.
2: (laughs) with that, thank you so much for hanging with us. And we will see you in two weeks.